A former employee of Smokin' Joe's Corner is in jail tonight on three counts of murder. Police say 19-year-old Ralph Stokes of West Philadelphia gunned down three people during a robbery last Thursday at the restaurant in the Winfield section of the city. One-time heavyweight boxing champ Joe Frazier is a part owner of the eatery. Frazier was not at the restaurant at the time of the incident. Police are searching for a second suspect whose identity has not been released. Lieutenant Edward Funk says several thousand dollars was taken during the robbery and has not yet been recovered. Police arrested Stokes without incident at his home Tuesday evening and charged him with three counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, two counts of reckless endangerment, and two counts of aggravated assault. Stokes was also charged with one count each of robbery, theft, conspiracy, receiving stolen property, and firearms violations. Funk said Stokes once worked at the restaurant, but did not know when the suspect's employment ended or the circumstances under which he left the job. According to police, two employees who witnessed the murders said one of the victims, 38-year-old restaurant co-manager Mary Louise Figueroa, apparently recognized the voice of one of the suspects, both of whom wore red ski masks. Employees told police Mrs. Figueroa said, I can't believe they're doing this to us. Police say the gunman herded four restaurant employees into a walk-in freezer, shot the lock off the restaurant safe, then rifled through the safe. They then returned to the freezer and opened fire, killing Mrs. Figueroa and 35-year-old Eugene Jefferson, a dishwasher at the restaurant. Police say the other two employees were not injured. Police say the third victim, 23-year-old postal worker Peter Santangelo, apparently walked into the restaurant to deliver mail during the robbery and was gunned down as he tried to flee. From Death by Incarceration and in association with Crawl Space Media, this is Injustice, an advocacy-focused wrongful conviction podcast. Welcome back. Episode four of Injustice, the Ralph Trent Stokes story. Wrapping up the, this main portion of the podcast, uh, I mean, we still have an episode after this, but for ep- episode four, we discussed the rest of the trial. Now, we previously went through the, the witnesses and possibly, probably, definitely other perpetrators. Uh, we should note that a, a couple of times in this episode, you'll hear us refer to uh, what we call the Celeste Report. Lisa, do you want to explain uh, kind of what that is and maybe who Celeste is so it, it puts it into context for the listener? Celeste Trusty, at the time that she wrote this report, was an advocate on wrongful convictions. She is very knowledgeable um, on these types of cases. She did kind of an investigation around the evidence that they used in Ralph's case and she kind of deconstructed and found some problems with a lot of the things that they used against Ralph at trial. Celeste is now a member of the pardons board in Pennsylvania and she's not, I think she's still an advocate but not actively working on cases like she was at the time. Um, But the, the report that she came up with was very helpful to me when I initially began working on this case because once I read the transcripts, I could go right into that report and see the problems with all the stuff that was used at trial. Yeah, it definitely helped me to sort of breaking it down into a more manageable piece of information because the the you know the court transcripts and everything are, are very dense, and that report really kind of summed everything up very nicely. Yeah, I agree. Okay, um, 
So beyond that, we wrap up our conversation with Maggie, uh, and we talk about the evidence, the you know paper-thin evidence that was collected from the Stokes house that was used to convict Ralph, and why, without a shadow of a doubt, that that evidence was in no way connected to this crime. It's just a another Roger King special. Uh, Lisa, I am going to keep it professional this time. I am not going to disparage Roger King, that cocksucker. We can edit that out. Um, <laughs> episode four, let's get into it. All right, well, I mean, that's that's basically the testimony and statements of the witnesses. I mean, there's a few other um, in there, but those those are the ones that, that matter the most. And that's what Ralph was convicted on, that, that and little else. And so we get to that. July 22nd, 1982, Ralph Trent Stokes is found guilty. Three counts of murder in the first degree and other related charges. He is sentenced to death. And one of the things that keeps coming back is the ineffective counsel. And part of the problem, like you had started to say this earlier, Ralph's first lawyer, this is the way it's worded, Ralph's first lawyer was permitted to withdraw just weeks before the trial started. And then his new lawyer, Malcolm Waldron, took over. Do you know what that means in that I mean, obviously, he requested to be removed, his, his first lawyer. But why would it be phrased as such that he was permitted? I think, if I remember correctly, I think that he was offered a new job. And I think that he, I mean, to me, I always thought the timing was remarkable, right? Because I think he was a much better attorney. He was much more up on what the facts of Ralph's case and had done a lot more work on it than Waldron had. I think that he, if I remember correctly, and I'll check with Ralph tonight when he calls, I think he was offered another job, and I think he put in a request to, to let this case go so that he could take this new job. If you tell me this motherfucker got a job working for Roger King, I, I am I going to lose it. I don't think it was to work for King, but I think it was another, and, and it, to be honest, I've always thought that King had something to do with him getting offered this job, 100%. And then I remember Waldron had put in a request for more time. And I think I think money for investigators, too, was part of it. And I think he was denied yeah. that after he took over. But to think that, I mean, just, just on the surface of it, let's say that the, the main lawyer had handled the whole case. The crime occurs in March, March 11. He's convicted by July 22nd. Yeah. That's a that's unheard of yeah. in this day and age. Absolutely. But also it goes to show that they were able to push it through like that because there was no real investigation that was done. You know, they made, it feels like to me anyway, they, like I said before, they made this decision that Ralph was the shooter and that's who they wanted to go after. And for a lot of the factors in this case, it, it hasn't been widely publicized. Um, you know, you got the smoke and Joe Frazier angle. You've got, you know, the, the postal worker, you know, the federal aspect to this. What struck me is in Celeste's report, it says that this crime initially got a lot of attention because of the postal worker. But now we search for, for stories online, and there, there's just not that many of them. Why, why do you think that is? 
I personally, I think it was Roger King. I don't, I think with the way that he was arranging for all of this to go and choreographing this, this trial and case against Ralph, I don't think he would want a lot of information out there about the case specifically. The only thing I can think of is what Celeste is mentioning is the initial reports of a triple murder at a restaurant co-owned by Smoke and Joe Frazier where a postal worker is killed. There would clearly be a lot of you know, press coverage of that crime initially. But when you go back and you look, you know, and I've searched pretty extensively, there aren't, there are a handful of articles about Ralph's case. It's basically like, well, an associate of Ralph says that he did it. Well, Ralph's on trial now. He's convicted. (laughs) The death sentence is is upheld. I mean, it's very like, you know, about this, about this, about this. It's, It's nothing like today where we see you know, basically a day-by-day play book of a case and a trial against somebody. Yeah. Or even, or even a fair, fair shake in the media. I mean, even all the articles just paint him as just like this monster, which is how usually how it is for these older cases. There is no like presumption of innocence, really. No. Right. I mean, do you think at this time in 1982, 83, Roger King was in a position where he could have influenced to suppress more more of this case getting out to the media. Sure. I mean, we've talked about how intimidating he was to people and how he would threaten people. And also, they would have been the people providing information to the media. That would have been coming from the DA's office about the case. And if you just don't give it out there, you know, you don't present it to anybody or talk about it, where you know there's nowhere else for them to go you know waldron signed on to the case for ralph just weeks before his trial so that you're not getting anything from them from the defense side and you know most of the time defense attorneys aren't putting their case out in the media prior to trial anyway and that's exactly what they did and then they used people like jackson who was definitely involved in the crime and Burley and all of these other suspect characters to shore it up for them. They all get deals or get cases dropped against them or whatever. And Ralph goes off to death row. Yeah. You know, the, the, just the time frame of it has always really bothered me. Yeah. I mean, Waldron comes in, it was a couple of weeks, right? He yeah, had a couple weeks of weeks before. to prepare, mm-hmm. which under any circumstance at all, is far too little time. Now you add in that it's a capital murder case. That right. it's it's you know the the federal aspect because there's a mailman. I mean, even for an experienced lawyer, which which he wasn't, it was it's was far too little time. Do we want? Do we even want to get into Judge Latrone, who who oversaw this case? Well, I actually think that that uh, June from our last season summed it up best by saying, you know, if you got stuck with Roger King and then Judge Latrone, you were done. It was a done deal before it ever started. And if you read the transcripts in the case, I think that, you know, that's proven. During the investigation, a search warrant gets issued to search Ralph's family's home. Well, they, they was my they was my little brothers. My, my two little brothers, and I think they took them on a trip when we went to the Poconos Mountain. 
Because they said the people in the restaurant used the blue jumpsuits. So they took the snowsuits. They test them. They try to say this is what was what I was wearing or what we wore. So they took them and they took my brother's sneakers that was in he was soaking dirty sneakers in a pail and took them to DC to be tested. The sneakers in a pail of water took it the test for gunpowder, blood, and barbecue sauce. And when they came back, it proved none of that stuff was in there. But he never gave those results to my lawyer and basically told the jury that all this stuff was in there. That these were the sneakers I was wearing. Because in a restaurant, it was a, it was a, I guess, a tomato sauce, a barbecue sauce had spilled over and it was footprints in it. But he had the test results. Now, the good thing with the lawyers I do have, in 2004, they found um, they found evidence for that. They showed that Roger King was persistently on the test results, waiting for them to come back from D.C. I told the detectives, asked them, did they come back yet? He said, no, we'll call them to see if they're done. If they're not, you make sure you let them know that when they are done, to send those test results back and you give them to me ASAP. So he was involved in all this. You know, he knew that none of this stuff was on there and never never gave them to any lawyer that ever represented me and basically told him that this stuff was in it. He hold, took the, the water that my brother, the pail that they were soaking in, took the sneakers out, poured the water in a container, showed the jury, said, look, the water, purplish gray, just tell them the stuff is in it. When he had the test results proven, none of that stuff was in it. During the course of that search, the police find a pair of sneakers soaking in a tub or a bucket or something with the hint of a chlorine smell. Like a pan of water. Okay. Like a shallow pan of water so that the soles of the shoes are soaking and the, not the whole shoes is in this mixture. But it was, there was bleach in the water, cleaner in the water, right. and it had a smell of, of cleaning in it. Right. And the the water was discolored. It may have had like a reddish tint to it. There was also some of this reddish liquid on the bath mat that was right next to this pot. Right. They also seized two ski suits. I believe there was an empty box of shells or a, a box that bullets had come in was found in Ralph's father's closet. And that's that's it. This whole case was based on the six witnesses we, we just talked about and that evidence that was required from the apartment. Now, samples are taken of the water that the shoes had been soaking in. Roger King told the jury that it positively contained traces of barbecue sauce and blood. Now, incidentally, as we mentioned earlier, there had been a pool of blood just outside the walk-in freezer that somebody had stepped in. Unfortunately, the crime scene photos, there was not one single clear photo 
of this pool of blood that had a fucking shoe print in it. They didn't think to take a clear picture of that so that it could be compared to people's shoes. Whatever. Two problems with the shoes. One, they belonged to Ralph's younger brother, so they were several sizes too small. His brother, uh, Ralph was 19 at the time. His brother was 14. Yes. 14, something like that. So they would have been several sizes too small. And did they call, they called that brother to the stand. Reuben. Yes. uh, Reuben, they called him to the stand and he testified that yes, those were his shoes. Right? The second problem is far bigger than the first. The first just being that the shoes were would have were impossible to have fit Ralph's feet. Larger than that, King had in his possession but never turned over to the defense, as is required by law, a lab report that conclusively said there was no barbecue sauce, no blood. King straight up looked them in their face and with his whole chest said to the jury, to the court, to Peter Figueroa, who just lost his wife, that there was definitely blood and barbecue sauce in the water that was tested. Maggie, if, you know, our, our podcast is, we're trying to have more of a focus on advocacy work in general. And if people get inspired, like, what would you say would be, the, where, to, where, would, where should people start? if they want to get involved in this type of work and when it becomes a passion? Well, exactly where I started, reaching out to the people. That's where I started. Um, Reaching out to them, reaching out to their advocates, just asking what to do. I mean, that's how I met Lisa. It's really not difficult. It just requires you reaching out. And I know a lot of people... (laughs) are hesitant about that these days in our society. You know, people were very informal and impersonal these days. So I could see that that might be scary, but just do it. Just do it and everything will fall into place from there. How did you get started in this? I know I know Lisa's origin story. She was sitting at home watching 48 Hours and mm-hmm. got drawn to it through a case there. How did you initially become interested in this type of work? Through Suave through meeting Suave and and working on a podcast about juvenile lifers. He told me about John Brookins, who he was in prison with in Greaterford slash Phoenix. And he said, you know, I think this guy's innocent. And I just kind of went from there. You know, I got really invested in doing criminal justice work and social justice work. And, you know, this was a field that there was not enough attention on at the time. And how many cases have you covered or worked on? 20-something so far. Wow. Um, which doesn't seem like a lot now because I talk to way more people than that. But I think I fully have covered 20-something cases. Yeah. And it's like, it's just never-ending, the amount of cases there are to cover. Yeah, there's a lot of job security in it. Mm-hmm. We'll pick it up on the other side of this break as we listen to a word from today's sponsors. He lied. He absolutely lied. Straight up. And this this is sort of a jumping off point a little bit because information 
that isn't actually discovered until later in 2004 when the postal investigator's files get turned over. And that's why we said earlier that the that his murder will end up being very key to this whole case. So before we go to 2004, uh, the ski suits, those were also in Ralph's brother's closet because, again, they belonged to his younger brothers, Reuben and Todd. And Ralph's father testified to that. And I, I, I think Roger King made him look foolish on the stand just despicable and even though it is absurd to think that men would be roaming around in the middle of the day wearing ski suits to do a robbery this is March in Philadelphia it could have been incredibly cold but the witnesses who describe what they were wearing nobody said ski suits they said Overalls or, or coveralls. I think those both of those words may have been used at, at different times. Renard Mills, one of the witnesses who was left alive, testified under oath that the ski suits were not what the perpetrators were wearing. And that just gets brushed aside. Because Roger King did his quote unquote good lawyering. That's another callback to a previous series we did called Romance and Murder in the Streets of Philadelphia. And you should go back and listen if you haven't. But the biggest evidence used to convict Ralph Trent Stokes was the lab report discovered in 2004. So not only did King withhold, which would have been enough on its own, he made, he made affirmative and false use of witness, which is a clear violation of Ralph's right to due process. It's one of many of the points made in his application for habeas corpus that was issued in 2004 and is still pending today. What do we want to say, Lisa? That's unheard of. It's unheard of. It's, I mean, it's, Unbelievable that you have a habeas petition pending for 17 years. Why? I mean, let's just take the piece of of Roger King lying to the jury. No mistake made. Definitively tests were done. They were hid from the defense. Not only were they hid from the defense, the, the, the opposite was pr- shown to the jury, told to the jury. What is there left after that? You know, it's the only thing that truly connected Ralph to the crime, to the scene. That's the only thing. And the fact that he's still sitting in prison after all of this is uncovered, and after we now know what Roger King really was, no instrument of justice, he was a liar and a fraud. It's disgusting to me. Yeah. Yeah, that that one point alone, the, the lab results test on its own should be enough, should have been enough in 2004. It should be enough today to get this case overturned to or, or looked at by the CIU. Something needs to happen. But that's not even the only point of that habeas corpus. There are so many other points to be made. So it's not even saying this. it's not inconsequential. There's a number of points. At the very least, Ralph should be given a new, should be granted a new trial. At the very least. Now, the problem with that is now 
is that you, there would be no way to convict him now because we know all of these things. Their witnesses, the, the credibility of every single witness that they called is completely jacked. Yep. We have the forensic testing now that we didn't have at the time of trial. I mean, there would be nothing to convict him again. What else do you want to say about Ralph? Just describe what can I say him. about Des- Ralph that's not been said? I mean, yeah. yeah, I don't... He's just very, like, just the sweetest old man. And it's just so sad to say he's an old man now. But, like, he's just the sweetest old man. Harmless. He just wants to freaking get out and live the rest of his life and, like, take care of some animals. You know, like... It's just sad when you talk to him because he is just so sweet. And, you know, there's there's no ego. There's no, like, you know, there's no weirdness about him. He's just a person. He's just an old man. He would be a grandpa. You know, kind, caring. He's very chill. I remember when you and I went to death row to visit him, I was super nervous. And he just kind of has this way of, like, completely setting you at ease. Yeah. And almost comforting you in this really weird, jacked up situation. But the time flew by and, and, you know, it was just a really great time with him. You almost forget where you are even, you know, to a certain extent. It's true. I mean, we did four hours with him and it flew by because he's easy. He is not, you know, some people I talk to, you know, they're just very intense. And how could you blame them after being in prison for decades, you know, and they're a lot because how often do they get to meet with people or talk to people or see people, you know? So it, it sometimes it really is a lot and it's overwhelming, but Ralph is not like that. I mean, he's not like that. Yeah, and Lisa, you've even said that at, at times he has cared more about what's going on with your life than what's going on with his when, when he reaches out. I think that really speaks a, a lot to his character. When I had to put my dog down in May of 2020 and he seriously got me through like some really difficult times when he would call you almost don't want to answer the phone when you're going through things like that like you just want to feel sorry for yourself and isolate a little bit but when we would talk it was all about how are you doing is there anything I can do for you it was just very comforting conversation and it kind of You wouldn't think that from a person who's literally been in prison for 40 years, period, but especially for somebody wrongfully convicted, it doesn't feel like he's, he's mentally affected the way a lot of people are, you know, with mental health issues and things like that. He, he just is very chill and caring and, you know, wonderful. And I'm very thankful. Yeah. It just makes you feel like it's really extra tragic that this like very kind caring soul never got to give that to the world well and also that he never got the attention that his case was due i mean up until this point he's never even got what i would consider a fair shake you know for a habeas petition to be pending for 17 years is just unbelievable and you know, life isn't fair, but I mean, this just seems particularly cruel. And Larry Krasner's administration has done a really good job of when a new trial is granted, 
saying we're not going to retry them for this crime. Yeah. I mean, talking about this makes me very angry. I know. And I realize why I think I, I think I forget a lot or, or I push it out of my mind because it makes me so angry when I think about all of these things, you know, but even just what we've spoken about today, it's unreal. I do remember one other time I was questioning about the ski suits and thinking about the fact that it was March. The high temp that day was, was what, 65 degrees. It would have been about 50 at the time that they went in there. So 50 degrees, you're probably not gonna wear full overalls unless you're working some sort of, you know, I don't know, street repair. I don't know what kind of work you do for that, but you, that I could see people wearing full on stuff, but not just running around the street. Yeah. And, and like you said, it was certainly never snowsuits. It was overalls right. or coveralls. Overalls, coveralls, um, something. Right. So, I don't know. There's just so much that there are little pieces, but when you add all the little pieces and then you add the big piece about the forensic testing and the shoe size and the, the snowsuit sizes and all of that, it just feels so wrong that he's still sitting there now yeah and that this habeas petition is still pending before a court after all these years and you were you were telling me more information about that right there's like some some news on that had recently come up well the judge uh, had asked for a status update in April of last year and there's nothing on the record to show that anything was submitted to the court by either side Ralph was told that his lawyers had asked for more time because they're going through some new records so that could be could be true and I hope that that's true and hopefully you know it won't be pending for another 18 years you know, year or 18 or whatever yeah it, 17 years is a really long time in life it's an incredibly long time on death row to just be pending. That's almost half of his incarceration. Yeah. You know, for a pending habeas petition. So, you know, some things have changed during that time. Some laws have changed. Some precedents have been set that could potentially help him. And I hope that that's the case, that ultimately the timing has worked in his favor. But the time is now. Yeah. The time is now. I feel like for myself that when I started working in this and, and becoming more interested in learning about these kind of cases, it kind of opens your eyes to a whole new world. It does, yeah. And I feel like, I mean, do you feel like you get back a lot of satisfaction and it's very fulfilling work, for me anyway? You know, what we went together when JJ, uh, John Adrian Velasquez, was released how did that feel? What did that feel like for you? I mean, it just felt amazing, you know? Like, it just it just feels so good to... And, you know, we're really lucky to be able to do work that helps people that we enjoy doing, and, you know, it's our job. So I don't even know the word to describe what I was feeling when JJ got out. You know, I don't, I don't even know if there are words but it was beautiful. It was an amazing day. And, you know, 
I hope that for everyone's case who I've covered. Right. I, I bring that up just to say that, you know, when you become involved in advocacy work, especially on cases like, like these, it, it can be depressing at times. It can be very frustrating at times, but it's also very worth it because when you see someone come home, you know that you've made a difference and an impact and, you know, it, it's like seeing that person live a free life is just an amazing feeling to know that you are a part of, of those things. So I, yeah. I would definitely encourage it. You know, I found meaning in my life and I think, I think we can always use more advocates in the game for sure. Absolutely. So what Lisa was just saying is that this work can, can get heavy a lot of the time. And one of the things that her and I talk about, and we're, we've got a, an episode that we're going to do on self-care. What, what do you do to sort of keep your head right when, when this type of work can bog you down a little bit? I don't know. I call Lisa and scream. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's different for everybody what, you know, self-care would look like. For me, it's often just like shutting down and shutting off for a bit. Which is hard because you don't want to, you know, abandon people for a few weeks, but you can't always be everybody's, you know, person all the time. Like you have to put yourself first because if you don't, you can't be there for anybody if you can't be there for yourself. So it's hard. That's how I process and deal with things. I kind of just turn off and tune out for a bit. You know, Lisa and I talk about this all the time. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's about establishing boundaries. And, you know, like you said, Ralph calls three times a day, and maybe you can only talk to him a couple of times a week if you have times that you are doing doing something else that you can't focus on this, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Maggie, is there anything that you want to um, offer up to us, to our listeners? Um, no, but thank you. And just thank you to Lisa for everything that she's done on this case. I mean, I wouldn't be here. Troy wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for Lisa, so it's true. We owe it all to her. Thank you, and thank you for everything you've done. You know, since we started working on this together, I appreciate it, and you're a great encouragement when it does get hard. Mm-hmm. So. Same, yeah. I mean, it's it's so nice to have each other. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that was a nice moment. <laughs> and then I had to ruin it. I I always I do that. I mean, <laughs> I, I got to make it weird. Yeah, I, I appreciate everything. As uh, as she'd tell you, what really helps me out, you know, during the days in here, whenever I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little down. I talk to her, Maggie, stuff we're trying to do. So it's just this whole process, just a long, drawn out thing, and the courts, the DAs, the lawyers, you gotta wait. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Of course. Thanks, Maggie. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye. All right, guys. That is episode four. Lisa, um, what do we want to do for our call to action this week? So for today, we would like to ask our listeners to visit the free ralphstokes.org website and consider making a donation. We're raising funds for uh, professional resources to work on Ralph's case and all of that costs money, and even the smallest of donations can make a big difference. Yeah, since we since we started episode one, we have seen uh, 
numbers grow a little bit on that um, on that fundraiser, we would like to get that number up. We want to hit. We want to get to at least ten thousand. Uh, that's what that's what we are hoping to by the end of this podcast run. So please get out there and and donate. All right, that's it. That's the show. Thanks for listening. Bye. Justice Podcast is brought to you in association with Death by Incarceration. Thank you to Crawlspace Media. Sound design, audio post-production, Jason Usry. Special thanks for original music to Bernaldo Rivaldi. Check out all his great stuff on iTunes and Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. Please support independent artists. Right now is a, a real tough time for creatives. Go to InjusticePod.com for more information, including what are the great podcasts we are listening to. You can also find information to contact the hosts directly there. General inquiries can go to info at InjusticePod.com. Thank you for listening. This has been an Injustice production.